as we turn this week back to the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 7, we've made it this far, and, and, and I'm going to do this. Chapter 7 is going to be something that we're going to look at just very briefly before moving into chapter 8. But I want you to know something about chapter 7 in Nehemiah. It's a very critical chapter for this book. Up to this point in Nehemiah, here's what the focus has been. The, this focus has been really on the physical rebuilding of the wall. We read even last week that the wall was completed in a remarkable 52 days. So incredible was this feat, in fact, that the enemies of the Jews and the surrounding nations became fearful because they recognized the only way this could be done is if God was helping them rebuild. Here's how chapter seven starts. Now, when the wall had been rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people, look at this, the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Now, in these few verses, we read that Nehemiah does some very practical things, right? He puts some things to put order into the city, even for the protection of the city. Verse four is key because it mentions that even though the city had been rebuilt, there were very few people there and the houses had not been rebuilt. What is so key is the focus now turns from not building the wall, but it turns to building the people. I said from the very beginning of this series that the re real rebuilding that was taking place was not the rebuilding of a wall, but really the rebuilding of the people. In fact, if you were to read the next 55 verses here in this chapter, here's what you'd see. You would just see a list of all the people who had returned from exile. You'd see this big genealogy. Now, I'm not going to read it to you this morning for time's sake, but just know this. God knows every one of those people are important. That's why he had their name listed there. And it's a reminder that people are important to God and that we're going to see here that now the, the people is who the focus turns to, the rebuilding of their lives. It's interesting to note, if you read even through chapter 7, that there is an emphasis on worship. There's going to be see things listed like the priests and the Levites and the temple servants. Those are the core of what we see listed in that. In fact, look at verse 73. It says, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants of all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their town. So we see again, the Levites, the gatekeepers, all that. We also should notice this, that as this takes place, the people this time, it says, had settled in their towns. Here's what it says. They had the suburb thing figured out, right? What they were doing, they weren't settled in the city. They were settled outside the city, and they would come to the city to do their business. Or like I like to say this, they live out in the country and only go to town when you have to, right? That's the way my life is. That's how it is. Well, the, the main thing I want you to see, though, is this. The people had returned from exile, but there was still work to do. At this point, the people were still not even that close to one another. There was a distance between them. The building was clearly not complete. But look at what happens as we begin chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. As we read this text, I want you to understand this, that the people had a deep longing for something more. I mean, there surely was excitement in the people that the wall of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. After decades of the wall being in shambles, to see the wall restored had to be a boost to the people's spirit. Maybe like some long-term long Elizabethonians, right? 
When they look at the downtown and see some of that coming back to life, maybe it gives them hope. They're excited. They say, oh, well, we love that. There, there was excitement, I'm sure, for the Jews, all right? They rejoice in that. However, as we look in this text, it becomes clear that just having strong walls did not make everything right. In fact, Pastor Chuck Swindoll stated, it's not enough to have a well-constructed superstructure if there's little or no life inside. Amen, right? Uh, unfortunately, I would say like many churches today, that should be an old me there, right? Anyway, the people of Israel realized that the building of the wall wasn't the main thing that needed to be done because here they begin to recognize that it is their lives that need to be rebuilt. So what do they do? Verse one says, all the people gather as one man into the square before the water gate. All right, folks, listen, don't ever buy into the lie that gathering God as God's people is unimportant, okay? I, I mentioned it before, but, but we'll mention it again, that one of the negative effects of COVID is that people began to be convinced that they did not need to gather with other believers. Even though it says this in Hebrews 10, you're familiar with these verses, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Even though there, there is this principle in Scripture, people today have said, in a sense, we don't need to go to worship. We don't need to gather. But let me go ahead and say this. Gathering for worship should be a priority for all of God's people, not just something to do occasionally or when it's convenient. It should be a priority because it is an opportunity to build your life spiritually. Okay? The Jews here in Nehemiah demonstrated that. They were not gathering for a pep rally. They were not gathering simply to celebrate a completed wall. They were gathering for a time of worship, and we know that because they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They were coming seeking to be obedient to God and to encounter him. This leads me to make this statement, folks. Cultivate in your heart a desire for God and for his people. See, we cultivate a desire in our hearts for many things, do we not? We do, right? If you're into sports, I mean, you're going to buy the attire for your team, right? All right? There's both proud UK and Uville fans today, right? Because we both had good weekends on the football field, right? So we ride with the attire to say, I love it. So I'm going to cultivate my desire. I'm going to put on the attire. You might put a plate or a sticker on your car to support that team, whatever. I mean, if you're into antiques, you'll save pictures on your phones of items that you hope to buy in the future, and you cultivate your desire. You might watch even Antique Roadshow to cultivate that desire. There are so many things in our life all right, that we have a desire for, and we cultivate that desire for many things. I'm going to say this. You should, on top of it, you should cultivate your desire for God. See, I love what the psalmist proclaimed in Psalm 42. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, the psalm is here, this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah, who are the temple musicians and assistants. And it expressed a desire for God that, that, that we should all have. We need to cultivate this desire and say, God, I want you, I need you, I long for you, I thirst for you. And in case you think this is solely even an individual thing, later in this psalm, it goes on to say this, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So you see, these verses show the importance and blessing of worshiping with God's people. I'm going to say this, there's just something special about gathering with others and joining and lifting your voices in praise to God. All right. I know personally I draw strength when I hear the collective voices of God's people singing and praising God. And here is my prayer. My prayer is that we would see a deeper longing in the heart of people for God. In fact, I've been praying for some time. I'm praying for revival to happen in our midst. 
And I, I often ask even myself, what, what can I do to bring revival? What, what can I do? How can I help this happen, right? But ultimately, folks, revival happens in our midst as it did here in Nehemiah when the people have a longing for something more. When the people gather not by force or not by guilt, but when they gather of their own accord and say this, bring God's word, right? Which leads to verses two and following. Let's keep reading. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears, look at this, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform and they had made, that, that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hekiah, and Messiah, and his right hand, and Padiah, and Messiah, and I'm going to get some of these wrong, so don't hold me to them, right? Malchazah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. I got close, right? <laughs> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. You see, clearly what we see in these verses is that the people focused on the word of God. You see, they asked Ezra to bring out the law, which have been the Bible of their time that they had. It would have been, you ready? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. That's what they had, all right? It was brought to them, all right? And they, they said it was brought, and everyone who could understand there was ready, right, for it to be read. And I love in this, these verses that it said, and the ears of all the people were attentive. All right, it wasn't just that the people had shown up to this gathering of worship. They were eager to hear. They were ready for God to speak to them. I wonder, all right, I wonder something. I wonder how many times we've come to church ready to hear from God. How often do you come to church checking your watch to see how much time is left, right? How long is that preacher gone today, right? And you're looking at your watch. Or you're looking and say, how much time is it till I get to eat? Because you're thinking about all the stuff that maybe you're doing this afternoon or this week or all these things, all right? I wonder how many times we've done that. I know I've been guilty, and I'm the preacher, right? I've been guilty, but not the people here in Nehemiah. They came hungry to hear God's word and their ears were open and they were attentive. They didn't want to miss what God was saying to them. In fact, they had such a desire for something more and such a focus on God's word. You ready? That they stood and they listened to God's word for six hours. When it said here that Ezra read from early morning until midday, that would have been about six hours. So please never complain about the length of my sermons because I always intend to keep them a little bit shorter than Ezra. No more than six hours. <laughs> uh, you can hold me to that one, all right? No more six hours, all right? But here are the people, they had gathered together ready in the front of the water gate. And when I think about water, you know, in the Bible, it has two significant purposes, cleansing, all right, and quenching of thirst. So they stand here in front of the water gate, ready to hear from the living God, all right? Now, I, I want to take a moment to make a special note that it wasn't just anyone in this moment who was leading the people. It was Ezra the priest. I mean, if you go to the book of Ezra, which some believe was actually originally combined with Nehemiah into one book, we read this about Ezra and Ezra 7, 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We've heard something similar to that before, right? 
We see that he's skilled in the law of Moses, and like Nehemiah, the king had granted him all that he asked because God was with him. He too had went to Jerusalem with the king's blessing, but ultimately by the Lord's leading, he has, in a way had a shared vision with Nehemiah, but he had a different part to play. He would not oversee the rebuilding of the wall, but he would clearly have a hand in rebuilding the people. In verse 10 in Ezra 7 helps us see why Ezra would be so key in the process. Look at what else it says about Ezra. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Jerusalem. Keep that up there for just a second, Nicole, if you would. Look, look closely at this verse. First, Ezra had a heart to study the law of the Lord. In other words, he wanted to make sure he clearly understood what God's word said. He wasn't going to just casually read God's word or shallowly read God's word. He wanted to deeply understand what God's word said. Now, next it said what? He had a heart to do it, all right? Ezra didn't want to just know what God's word said. He wanted to make sure first it affected his life. He wanted to make sure that he was living by God's word and what it said, all right? So he was going to do it. And then after he knew it and applied it to himself, he was then going to teach it to others. Man, what a great example, amen? In fact, his example is one that we can all learn from and follow. Every person, every person needs to study God's word so they know what it truly says and not just what someone else tells you it says. Study it and know it because God's word is cleansing and God's word is thirst quenching, but don't just know it because for it to have its full effect on your life, you have to do it. All right, there's much wisdom to be found in God's word, but can, it can only help you if you do what it says. And I will say something I've said before, but it's worth repeating. Our problem isn't what we don't know about God's word. Our problem is that we fail to do what we do know about God's word. That's, that's our biggest problem, right? Then as you begin to go out there and you do God's word, then you can teach it to others because others need the hope that God's word brings. It's why I give you this challenge. You ready? Make God's word a priority. You know, I see people all the time looking for direction. They want to know what to do, how to live, how to deal with situations in life. And so they're looking for answers everywhere. They'll turn and read books. They'll scour the internet. They will seek out counselors. They'll browse social media, media, they'll turn to friends. They do all these things looking for direction and guidance, but many of them fail to turn to one place that they should. They fail to turn to God's word. I, I wanna tell you, God's word should not be the last place you go to, God's word should be the first, all right? It should be the first place that we go to, all right? You don't go there when nothing else works, you go there first, God's word should. Now, Psalm 119 is a psalm all about God's word, but these verses are a few from that psalm that we should hold on to. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I have no doubt that life is better when lived according to God's word. You see, the people of Israel here in Nehemiah had suffered because of their failure to live by God's word, so they longed for something more. They knew they needed to turn to God's word and make it a priority if things were going to be different moving forward. And so as they gathered together for worship, they stood listening to God's word, all right? Now look what we continue to read, Nehemiah 8, back to verse 6. And Israel blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered. 
Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, a bunch more Levites, all right, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book for the law of God clearly, and look at this, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Here's what we're going to see. The people worshiped God. The focus of this time wasn't on Ezra. Ezra. The focus of this time wasn't on the people. The focus was on God and not just any God, the Lord, the great God. See, I hope you realize that at this point, all that has happened, you ready? All that has happened at this point is Ezra has begun to read in God's word and the people were attentive and nothing else. You understand that, right? right. There wasn't a band playing. There wasn't any lights flashing. Catch this. There was not even a sound system to amplify Ezra's voice. Nothing. All there was at this point was a hunger by the people for something more and a focus on God's word. The result, worship. And it wasn't just Ezra blessing the Lord, but I hope you paid attention that the people's reaction, the people answered, amen, amen. Let me ask you, is it okay to say amen when the preacher's preaching? Amen. That's right. <laughs> you should have said yes to that one. Because amen really means this, all right? Amen is just an affirmation or agreement. It's saying, preacher, what you just read is surely true. Or what you said is surely true. It is meant to give support to the word spoken. So some people were saying, amen. What you're reading, Ezra, it is true. But that's not all. This is where I really get some of you. It says some of them lifted up their hands. Hmm. How shocking is that, right? Some people may not want me to read this because lifting hands in worship makes you uncomfortable. Some may even wonder, why do you raise your hands in worship? Well, I don't know why some people do, but I'm going to tell you why some people do, including me. Sometimes it's just going, God, I just need you. God, God I, all I know, I, I don't really have enough to express how I feel about you, God, but I'm going to raise my hands to you, Lord, because I need you. One of the analogies that I've used, too, is kind of like that little child that's reaching up to their parents and say, pick me up, please, Right? Anybody had a look, even when they're real little, right? But first of all, they do their hands like this. Oh, pick me up, mommy. Pick me up, daddy, right? Or pappy, what a mammy, what me, me? My, 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 my. Oh, no, I'm in trouble now. Uh, I, but, um, you know, it, it's a recognition indeed that we need God to hold them. Some raise their hands to God. As we look further, it said some bowed their heads and worshiped with their heads to the ground. In part, this is an expression of reverence to God, recognizing that he is so holy that they could not even look upon his face, all right? Probably as well, this time is a recognition of one's sin. However people express themselves in worship, the key is they were engaged in the worship of God. They, they were not being passive observers. They were completely engaged with God. They were mentally engaged, physically engaged, emotionally engaged, spiritually engaged. They were engaged as the worship of God. See, as the people worship, look at what verse 8 even said again. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense to what the people understood the reading, all right? So these people are engaged, and what we see in these verses is that ultimately Ezra and the Levites explain to the people what's being read. Because these Jews had been in exile for so long, there was a sense that the people would not even have understood fully the ancient Hebrew text, so they needed it explained to them. Let me ask you this. You do know language changes over time, right? All right? Think about this. this might blow some, I might blow some of you away today, but you understand we're living in a post-Christian era. How many of you ever used the expression, right? You have the patience of Job. All right. Is that all that's ever used that expression? Y'all just afraid, y'all afraid to raise your hands in worship. 
I want you to understand that if you've ever, I've used that all the time. I grew up using that expression. Do you understand today? There's a lot of people who have no idea who Job is in our world. And if I'm going to use the expression patience of Job, I have to tell somebody, well, let me tell you who Job is. Job lost everything on one day. I mean, he just lost his whole life. He had these friends that gave him horrible, you know, they gave him horrible advice, but he endured all of that. He, he had a patience of Job, right? You have to explain it because so many people in our society don't even know. And so if I was to even read, somebody said, who, who's Job? Or David and Goliath. Do you understand there's a bunch of people who have no idea who David and who Goliath is? It's because of our culture. Yeah, it is shocking, but that's true, all right? See, some, again, some of you might be shocked that it's true, but Nehemiah and, and Ezra's time, the Hebrews would have needed, all right, the Hebrew text explained to them because times had changed. They'd been living in exile. They hadn't been living in Jerusalem. They needed some understanding of even what am I reading, right? Who is this Moses guy? Who is this Joshua? Who are these people, all right? The connection should be clear to what we do on a regular basis. Even as we go through Nehemiah, some of you may have been wondering when we started, well, how's Nehemiah going to apply to my life? I mean, it's written thousands of years ago, and it happened thousands of written ago. How's this? But hopefully, here's what we're doing. As we're going through the text, you're seeing how it applies to you. You can understand it and apply it to your life. See, at the center of worship is God's word, and not so that we would worship the Bible, okay? I'm not encouraging you today to worship the Bible. This is not what we worship, Okay? But we make this an emphasis. Why? Because it points us to the great God who is the one we are to worship. We're to worship the God of the Bible. God's word has been given so that we would know him and know his will for our lives, which gives us this challenge, right? Be engaged in the worship of God. You see, as the people here in Jerusalem engaged in worship, so, so should you. Never be a passive spectator at church. As you cultivate a desire for God and make God's word a priority, a natural result should be engaging in the worship of God who created you, who loves you, who gave his word to tell you of his love for you and his desire for your life. You see, my prayer is that you would have the attitude of Psalm 122, 1, every time you have a chance to worship, that you would say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, I pray that worship is something you look forward to and that through it, you grow closer to God. I desire that because I know this, there is something very positive that comes from the heartfelt worship of God. In fact, let's keep reading. Verse eight, and Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat, and eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. As we look at these verses, here's what we're going to see. The people found joy in God. Now, maybe after what I just read the, 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 in these verses, you say, is that statement really true? You see, because I read verse 9, that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Let, let me ask you, why, why do you think the people were weeping when they heard the word read? Why were they weeping when they heard Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Why, why did they weep when they heard it? Maybe it's because the people who heard the word understood that they had been a, a people suffering because of their failure to know and to follow the Lord. Maybe they heard Ezra read Deuteronomy 8 that said this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. 
Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your father did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if, look at this, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see, maybe they read that and realized that the reason they had suffered is because they had a people had failed to obey God's word and therefore they had suffered. My guess is the people in this moment truly realized how far as a people they had gotten away from God. In this moment, they recognized their guilt. You know, I tend to believe that in that, is, that's the case because what I, what I know in, in my life is when I realize my sin and failure, there is a sense within me that I want to weep over sin. And I tell you this, I also know that I have this desire to weep over the sin when I see it in other people. In fact, in our day and time, I want to weep when I think about how far we as a nation and as a people have gotten away from the will of God. We as a people should be weeping as the people did in the day of Nehemiah. Now, some of you may be thinking, Brother Scott, I thought you told me the people found joy in God and you're telling me they wept. If that's you, you're correct. And here's why they found joy. Look at verse 10 again. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and spend portions or send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah speaking to the people at this point, looked at them and basically said, you can stop crying now because there's a way for your crying to turn to joy. And that way is turning to the Lord. Yes, the people had suffered because of their sin and rebellion against God, but God was in the process of healing them. Maybe Nehemiah needed to remind them that the people needed to know that God doesn't punish without hope. In fact, maybe Nehemiah pointed them back to what Ezra would have read in Deuteronomy 30 when he read this. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, in other words, when you're in exile, right, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Is that hope? Right? Maybe Ezra had read that as well, and the people either understood more deeply their need to turn to God, or maybe they understood in this moment that God was already in the process of restoring their fortunes. Either could have made them cry. What I'm certain of, though, is this, is Nehemiah wanted the people to know that the joy of the Lord was their strength. Strength here meaning a mountain or a stronghold. 
Nehemiah didn't want the people to think that their strength was found in a strong wall. Nehemiah didn't want the people to think their strength was found in their crying. The people had gathered together looking for something more, focused on the word of God. They began to worship the Lord's of Syria. And in the process, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the other leaders wanted the people to know that the joy of the Lord is their strength. They didn't need to cry anymore because God in in, in his strength was restoring them. As as a result, this is what I want to say to you. Look to God for joy. Maybe you're here today and you relate to the people of Israel. Maybe you made a mistake that you've taken, you know, for God that's taken you away from God and you've been suffering for it. You might even be crying over your mistake. If not on the outside, at least on the inside, you're crying. I want you to know there's hope. Listen to what the psalmist declared in Psalm 30. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Oh, Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Yeah, where's the big amens on that one, right? Joy comes in the morning. What a word of hope and joy. Let's be honest with each other today. Okay. We've all at one time been like the people of Israel. We've all at one time rebelled against God, did our own thing and suffered because of it. We may not have suffered a broken down wall or an exile to a foreign land in our lives, but it might as well have been. Okay. Maybe you suffered a broken relationship or a broken career or a broken marriage or a broken friendship, a broken reputation. You experienced some kind of brokenness in your life. You possibly even suffered some kind of exile from your family, from your friends, from your coworkers, from your church even. How you've suffered is unique to your situation, but you've experienced the wondering and the pain that comes with it. Maybe because of that, you're here today longing for something more. Maybe you're looking for healing, looking for a reason to have hope, but you've gathered with others today looking for more. Here's the good news. God's word has something to say to you. I have an illustration that I've shared in the past, and I want to share it with you again. When I was in middle school, I began to like this girl that I thought I had no way in the world with. I didn't think any way she would ever like me. She seemed too far out of my league. She was older, and no way did I think I would have a chance with her. We became friends, but still I believe that that's all that it would ever be. But at the start of my sophomore year in high school, we were in English class. I don't remember if it was the first or second day, somewhere in those, for one or two days. I don't remember at this point. I'm old. It gets a little bit foggy at this point, right? But it was the day, anyway, we were handing out books, in class, English class. And so the, all those books are going around. And one of my friends, all right, one of my friends took their book and said, you might want this one. And I said, why? I mean, this one would be fine. Why do I need that one? And he said, look at the back cover. So I opened it, the back cover, and the back cover, it said this. It said, Kim Puckett loves Scott Kerr. <laughs> I said, that's all I need to know, boys. That's all I need to know. That's all I need to know. At that point, I, I didn't think I had a chance. I had no idea that she loved me. I had no, but when I read her handwriting in that book, I knew for the first time, in fact, that she loved me, and the rest is history. And I began to pursue her, and now we've been married for over 35 years. Okay, I share that because some of you today are broken. Hear me. Some of you are broken this morning, and you think there's no way that God could ever love you. You think there's no way he could ever love you because all that I've done, there's no way God could ever love me. But I got news for you, all right? We need to make God's word a priority because you know what? You read when you open up this book, you open up this book and it tells you that God loves you and he's made a way for you to have a relationship with him. 
And if you don't think God loves you, again, open it up. Would you just read it? Because that's what he's telling you. And maybe this morning you're in a place, all right? You're in a place and you think, listen, God can't love you. He can. Because we read his word. Because think about this. Do you understand something? That Jesus is the word in flesh? Do you understand Jesus is God's word that shouts the loudest that he loves us? In John 1, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Grace. Grace and truth. Jesus came to declare God's love to us, but more than that, to make a way for us to enter into God's love through faith in him. The Bible makes it clear that we cannot be righteous on our own. We are sinners who either have in the past lived in rebellion against God or in the presence, and we have no right to be with God. We have no right to experience his blessing. But because Jesus died in our place to pay for our sin, when one places his or her faith in what Jesus did on the cross and trusts in one's heart that in, indeed he, he raised from the dead and offers his life, you can experience God's forgiveness, gain again the hope of heaven, and be able to live in God's joy now and forever. In fact, I like what Jesus told his disciples as he was explaining to them what was getting ready to happen to him in his death and resurrection. He said, so also you have sorrow now. They were, they were going to be sad when he died but I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Here's the good news. Because Jesus not only died for us to show he loved us, he rose again. And because he rose again, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, the good news is you can gain a joy that you've never had and you can gain a joy that no one can ever take from you. See, we're gonna move to an invitation. Again, here in Nehemiah, the wall had been rebuilt, but the people were still broken. And this morning, you may look around and you say, oh, there are a lot of things in my life. Man, I built a good career. I built a good home. I built all this. But maybe the reality of your life is all the wrong things are built and you're not built. Maybe your life is still broken. You're suffering and you know that. I've got hope for you, all right? There's a God who loves you. All he wants you to do is come, worship him, look into his word, find the hope that he brings. And if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ, he's ready to forgive you, restore you, and give you a new life. Even if you're a believer here today, all right, and, and something happens that's taking you away from God, I got news for you. God's ready for you to come back to him. Morning may last for the night, but the joy comes with the morning. We're going to move in a moment to invitation. And I don't know what you need, but today... If you need a life that's rebuilt, God's ready. He's just waiting for you to cry out to him. This altar is here for you to come and kneel before a holy God. If you can take care of that just between you and him, you do that this morning at this altar. If you need somebody to help you, somebody to talk to, I'll be over here. Brother Jacob will be over. And I guarantee you there's many others that would love to talk with you about how, listen, God can rebuild your life if you'll just turn to him. He's just waiting for you to reach out. He's given us this word, all right? Believe it or not, I could just read you this morning if I wanted for six hours, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you would know even in there how much God loves you. All right? He loves you. Are you ready to receive his love and be rebuilt this morning? Let's bow together. Our Father, as we come to you now to this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that you'll speak to hearts and lives this morning. I know, Lord, you want to rebuild lives. That's what you really desire, Father. You want lives that are dead in sin to be made alive in Christ. You want lives that have been broken and maybe in exile because of their rebellion against you to come be restored and even have their fortunes restored. Father, today I pray that you'll just move in this mist. Again, Father, I know that we need you to move. We need your spirit to be poured out. 
And Father, I pray that you send revival in the hearts of your people in this community in the world. Because Father, we so desperately need you. So bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.